This is Construction Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. Construction Law Today is a podcast about current topics in American construction law. Your host for Construction Law Today is Buzz Tarlow. Our podcast, Construction Law Today, began in July 2019 and is now in its second season. In our first year, we produced 14 episodes on a variety of what we hope were timely and interesting topics in the field of construction law. In our upcoming season, we hope to produce similar podcasts at the rate of about one new podcast per month. As always, we welcome your questions and comments. Please let us know what you think we can do to improve the podcast. The contact information for Construction Law Today is found at the end of this podcast. On behalf of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law, thanks for listening. Welcome to the podcast. The ABA Forum on the Construction Industry has been producing and publishing books on construction law for more than 30 years. The Forum has published dozens of titles, many of which are now in their second and third editions. And the forum continues to publish new original works to serve construction lawyers and construction professionals as the field of construction law continues to grow, evolve, and change. Today's episode is devoted to one of the forum's most recently published books, Design Professionals Guide to Construction Law. And we have with us today the three talented and experienced construction lawyers who acted as the editors of this new volume. And let me introduce them now briefly. First is Matt Nineman. Matt served as the executive editor of the book. Matt's a partner in the law firm of Hall and Evans in their Denver office. Next is Buck Belzer, who's a partner in the Denver law firm of Belzer, Bangert, and Gunnell. And then finally, Mark Mercanti, a partner at Baker Donaldson, in their New Orleans, Louisiana office. Now, before we talk about the book today, let's meet these lawyers and find out a little bit about their role in producing the book. Matt, let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your law practice and the background of why the forum decided to put this title together. Thanks, Buzz. Uh, As you noted, I'm out of Denver, Colorado. I'm originally a Madison, Wisconsin brat, moved out here about 20 years ago uh, to start my practice. I've been representing general contractors, engineer and architectural firms, and specialty subcontractors for about the last 16 years of my almost 20-year practice, kind of a cradle-to-grave approach of front-end contract work to the back-end litigation, so try to get a flavor of it all. Let me turn to you, Buck. Uh, I've known you for many years and I'm well acquainted with what a terrific lawyer you are. Tell us a little bit about your work and in particular, your interest in this particular field of design professionals. Thank you, Buzz. I am a second career lawyer, my first career being an engineer. And so I was drawn to this particular part of construction law because of that background and because I felt a desire to maintain my connection with the design community. Finally, Mark, thanks for joining us. We're particularly happy that you could make it. I know you've just survived Hurricane Ida down in 
New Orleans. Tell us a little bit about your law practice and how did you get involved in this project? Thanks, Buzz. Regarding Ida, we were fortunate in relative terms. We didn't take a direct hit. We had 125 mile per hour winds here in the New Orleans region, but many others further west of us did take direct hits. And it's going to be a storm we'll be talking about for a while. As far as my practice, I'm part of a 30 plus person group at Baker Donaldson, but I really get to focus on the South Louisiana construction industry. And a lot of that is civil, industrial, and and we do some commercial as well. And really my my involvement here is part of the division three involvement that uh, I've had along with Matt and Buck for somewhere along the lines of 15 years, I'd say. Well, great. Well, thanks to all of you for being here. Before we talk about the substance of the book, I'm, I'm most interested to learn a little bit about the authors. Matt, let me address this question to you. Tell me about the people who actually write the chapters that go into the book. Who are they? Well, all of them are members of the ABA Forum on Construction Law, which gives us an opportunity to take on leadership roles and and get on projects like this. This book is the second edition focused on design professional risk management. The first edition was coupled with construction manager issues as well. And the forum felt we should break those books up. And I was happy enough to get involved through the prior editors who kind of stepped down and allowed us to uh, select a new editor group. And I picked these two jokers because of their skill and their breadth of practice and their ability to put out good work. And, and frankly, just because they're a lot of fun to work with. The authors in the book kind of cut across a, a wide range in terms of who's involved in counseling construction professionals with a design focus. We've got a lot of lawyers on both the transactional side and the litigation side. They might be arbiters. They might be insurance risk managers and directors within their practice field. And with the design, Mark mentioned Division Three. A lot of these folks are former Division Three chairs, Mark being one, Buck being another. Some of the other authors, Jamie Nardiello, Ty Holt, Karen Erger, Stephen Hess, Carrie Okazaki, Terry Scanlon, Ben Patrick, all folks that are well known within the construction practice area and within the forum. So we tried to cull original authors and uh, God bless them for allowing others to take their roles and and bring new blood to the book. So uh, it was neat to have some senior folks and those that were willing to bring in new folks and new ideas to this second edition. So well, I, I did notice really terrific group of authors, and I'd recommend to our listeners to listen to what these folks have to say. They're a really, really good group. Let me throw this out to all of you. Why did the forum think that now was the time to um, put together a book that was devoted to design professionals? I think the reason really was we've got a group of practitioners that are at considerable risk. When we've got new methods in terms of how projects are being designed and built, different structures contractually, how those things are done. As many know, we have some form contract industry groups that put out new editions of contracts. We have a a wide range of varying laws across the states 
uh, here in our country. And the risk that the design professional carries is significant and, and more, I think, than many of the project participants uh, in construction. And so being able to bring about a book that's focused on their risk mitigation strategies, I think, is key and something that the forum wanted to get out into the marketplace. Well, let me follow up a little bit on that question. And Mark, let me address this to you. What's going on in the legal world that makes construction lawyers think of design professionals as potentially being exposed to different kinds of risks than, say, uh, general contractors or subcontractors? Buzz, I'll tell you, one of the things that we see quite a bit here is shifting of the model, the delivery systems. Um, We're seeing a lot more construction manager at risk projects and an InDesign build. And there is an entirely different set of risks associated with those or or new risks associated with those that I don't know that traditionally design professionals have had to worry about. On the design build side, we're seeing design professionals being at risk for treatment in some respects, like subcontractors and uh, offsets and things of that nature. And, And that's addressed. We've got a whole chapter devoted to the design build method of construction and the risks that design professionals take. On the construction manager at risk side, we have design professionals working with the general contractors earlier in the development of the entire project. And there have been cases that have suggested that unless it's stated otherwise, the design professional might take on some additional risks as the representative of the owner. And again, that's also addressed in the book. So there has been some, as Matt said, some development of the law and some additional risks that have come into play as we see the design delivery method shift. So you're talking about those issues that arise in kinds of risks that may be undertaken in connection with a particular contract. Buck, how about from the common law and standard of care point of view? Are there some important changes uh, in that regard? Buzz, the standard of care has not changed a whole lot since the last iteration, but there have obviously been developments in the common law that have interpreted the standard of care, particularly when it comes to what uh, lawyers call the heightened standard of care. This book will highlight the cases that have been decided since the last iteration that expand on that doctrine. But there are other a couple of unique things to design professional law that this book provides a great foundation for, as well as an update on the previous foundation. And those, uh, in addition to the things Mark just pointed out, include betterment, which is a doctrine of law that has been developed in recent years, uh, better developed in recent years. The economic loss doctrine, which seems to evolve and change depending on state by state and the facts of any particular matter. I've noticed over the years, Buck, that when I hear or or read an opinion referencing the economic loss doctrine, that more often than not, the judge is talking about something different than I thought the economic loss doctrine was. So that's certainly a moving target, isn't it? It is. And and maybe the forum should produce a glossary of terms, including the economic loss doctrine for judges to put on the bench. 
You were talking about some of the, the themes that were developed in the original edition, but I'm curious, as you're putting the next edition together, what surprised you about the evolution of the law? What surprised me, Buzz, I'm not sure that there were a whole lot of surprises in this book in terms of the evolution of the law. But one thing that is, I think, of great concern to practitioners who are in this area would be, as Mark started to talk about earlier, the way that design build is sort of taking over the way that design professional law gets developed. And judges don't have a great sense of project delivery differences. So you often see cases about a design build project that get applied to other types of delivery methods. And it creates great confusion when you try to synthesize those things into advice for your clients. That, that's an interesting concept, Buck. Mark, why don't you, for our listeners, just give a quick example of the differences between design build and uh, more traditional things like design bid build or those types of delivery methods? Sure. And from the design professional's perspective, which is really what we were focusing on in the book, it's the privity of contract. It's with whom the design professional contracts is really the first and most significant change between design build and design bid build. So in the design build method, the design professional is contracting to the typically around, at least in Louisiana, the design builder is is a contractor. The designer will be subcontracted to the design builder. Uh, In the design bid build method, the designer signs a contract with the owner typically long before the contractor is on board and the owner and designer proceed through the design evolution process. It's an iterative process between those two parties and produce a a set of designs that's then bid upon by multiple contractors. In the design build method, the iterative process still involves the owner, the contractor is is really overseeing the designer's efforts uh, and the designer is responsible to the contractor in that way. We'll be back with more Construction Law Today in just a moment. FTI Consulting is a leading global provider of project advisory, construction claims analysis, and expert witness services. As the construction industry navigates the short and long-term impact of the pandemic, FTI Consulting is committed to continuing our longtime support of the ABA Forum on Construction Law and its members. Meet our experts at FTIConsulting.com. Welcome back to Construction Law Today. We're talking with the editors of a new publication by the ABA Forum on Construction Law. That book is Design Professionals Guide to Construction Law, and the three editors are Matt Nineman, Buck Belzer, and Mark Mercanti. Buck, let me address this question to you. I know that in this year, there's been a, a new edition of several AIA documents, and of course, those are an influential and important documents in construction law and in particular in the design business. Are you seeing any changes in some of the concepts that we all are familiar with based on some of these new modifications to the AIA forms? We are, Buzz. As you know, because you are a construction lawyer yourself, 
the AIA exists to make sure that lawyers have new clients and new things to bill on every 10 years because they change the contracts. I just wish they could revise them every five years, you know? We're working on that. Luckily, we also have the EJCDC and Consensus Docs, who does regular updates for the sole benefit of the lawyers. But obviously, yes, they the update to the forms do provide a lot of new fodder for updating clients' own standard contracts, which most design professionals have. And so we do get a lot of questions about those forms. I would say in particular, the things that that those forms address are big cases, right? Like, for example, the mutual waiver of consequential damages came out of that large casino case some years ago. That's not a new update to the form, but an example of a reaction. And then a lot of state legislature work gets built into the forms in California and Florida and Texas are usually the leaders in that. And so you'll see a lot of changes to the forms to account for those new state laws and make the forms more applicable so that they can sell more contracts to lawyers in those states. Let me ask you, Matt, about this. One of the things that has been kicked around a lot on the various form construction contracts are are how and in what matter you can limit liability. Also, uh, provisions about uh, limiting or allowing the purchase of more insurance coverage. What's going on in the world of design professionals that's influenced by uh, some of those issues? Well, I, you know, I think with respect to just liability overall, consider the general rate at which design professionals work in terms of, especially with subconsultants. I mean, they may be doing an incredibly large project with great risk and the fee coming back to them is in the tens of thousands of dollars, which when you are in a position where an owner is relying on you to do this very sophisticated design that requires licensure and significant education. And then when the contractor builds it and they don't build it according to the plan or they make decisions without your input, you're stuck in the middle and you have risk on both sides of you. You have an insurance policy, as we know, that's typically eroding where your defense dollars are being taken out of this policy. And so the design professional has a a lesser ability to really limit their risk in terms of how the project moves on and control that. And so part of it's trying to figure out how do we do that within the contract setting. And so we look at ways of the consequential damage waiver. We talk about maybe limiting that exposure to the amount of your fee or the amount of remaining insurance coverage, or you set some fixed value that you can live with as an exposure for some calamity that happens downstream. And so we're trying to advise the design professionals, we do so in this book, about how to limit those things. And so to echo Buck is that consequential damage waiver is key, trying to get some limitation in place at a minimum to strip it down to what policy limits that that would be paid out and remain on the policy might be the ceiling at which you want to set your exposure. I'll, I'll jump in uh, and say, yeah, I'm pretty fond of a waiver that sometimes you don't 
when you represent a design professional, don't get a ton of pushback on. The most interesting thing is it's not typically found in the design professional contract, at least with respect to AIA, and it's the waiver of subrogation. And that is a provision, at least for the AIA documents, that's found in the insurance provisions of the um, construction contract. But it, it being an AIA provision, it provides a uh, waiver in favor of the architect as well, unless revised. And when I am representing the design professional, I go find that construction contract and, if necessary, fight for the architect to be listed in that waiver. And, and I've had a number of cases where it has made the difference between a multi-million dollar exposure and you know, an exposure maybe to a deductible. It's a significant provision that probably doesn't get a lot of talk. You know, Mark, it raises in my mind, I've always found the waiver of subrogation to be a somewhat surprising contractual provision from the point of view of insurance carriers. Do you have any comments about why carriers, especially in the potentially professional liability area, agree to allow those waivers to be made? In short, don't carriers who think they've found the bad actor want to get some money out of that person or entity? I believe so. It's um, I, I have routinely come across insurers who, uh, property insurers having paid out express surprise at the existence of the waiver when in fact I'm usually confident they know it exists. <laughs> so I, I do believe it's a point of consternation for them. And, and I've seen cases where the insurer will attempt to argue that unless it, it's part of a, a policy provision, that the contractual provision is not enough. But I, I've yet to see a situation in the cases I've been involved with where the waiver between the parties did not stand up to some pushback from the insurer. I mean, Buck, I know you've worked on some very large projects. In, in essence, if these waivers of subrogation go through all the contracts and all the subcontracts, don't we essentially end up with an OSIP or a CSIP? Yeah, that's right, Buzz. And, and also more frequently nowadays, a project-specific policy that is supplants the practice policy for the design professional's use. So, Matt, this discussion about insurance, which arose from the points that Mark was making, is that covered in the book? And tell me a little bit about the chapter on insurance. Yes, th there is. Our chapter eight is design professional risks, indemnification, and professional liability insurance. And the author is Karen Erger, who's the director of risk management at Lockton. She's a former, just very former division three chair. And she goes in, it was effectively a rewrite chapter and talks about all of the things that you would anticipate needing to know on, a, on an insurance from uh, at least relative to the, the professional policy, whether it's the indemnity provisions, restrictions on those provisions, the kind of some standard form language, who's covered, what's covered, who has a duty to defend and when does it arise. We talk about coverage positions of former employees, additional insured impacts. And then of course, the all important exclusions. Uh, we all know reading these policies, there are exclusions and exclusions and exclusions to the coverage. And so she does a really great job of walking us through that, whether it's 
contractual liability, warranty language, heightened standard of care, insured versus insured claims. So she really covers the gambit. It's an important topic and it, it's critical to risk, risk mitigation for the design professional. Well, I've known Karen for years and I would highly recommend her to anyone who's looking for a source to get smart about insurance and uh, risk issues to architects. So I'm sure that chapter is really terrific. Uh, Mark, is there a chapter in the book that uh, stands out in your mind as something interesting and topical that our listeners would be interested in? But I, I really appreciated the chapter on tort liability for design professionals. I think it's chapter six. We all know uh, as practitioners about the standard of care, and that's certainly a tort concept, but they the authors in that chapter go into quite a bit of detail on related issues associated with indemnification, uh, even um, in addition to tort liability, some statutory liability for tort claims such as OSHA. And I think we typically think in terms of exposure to the party within the design professional contracts, but there's a whole host of other exposures out there and they're addressed in detail in that chapter. Hey, Mark, let me follow up because I think you may have mentioned this earlier and it interests me. The world of licensing, of course, a matter of state law, but that's getting more complicated about who needs to hold what license depending on what role they're taking on in a particular project. Does part of the book cover that issue? It does. We've got an entire chapter on licensing-related issues, the stamping and sealing obligations, which I'll put a plug in for our Division Three. We've done a 50-state survey on that. You know, as you might expect, the law in the 50 states is, is quite diverse. There's issues with respect to licensures of individuals versus licensure of firms. And again, uh, you step in any state and you've got to look at the law of that individual state. But if the chapter on that does a good job of describing what the, the possible uh, expectations for various states would be. And then malpractice reporting is another issue. And again, related to licensure, where each state has some expectation for self-reporting and that's addressed as well. Buck, let me turn to you. Is there a chapter that um, sticks out in your mind as something that'd be uh, topical and relevant to our listeners? You know, it's kind of off the beaten path in terms of design professional law, but um, the chapter on intellectual property I thought was really interesting. You know, there's um, a road is a road is a road, but when you talk about buildings and certain other advancements in, in engineering and architecture, particularly in architecture, the protection of those interests is of paramount importance to your clients. And so I thought it was interesting to see both how that protection works and has evolved since the last iteration, and also how you can maybe use that protection for other things such as leverage for payment if your design professional client isn't getting paid. I had a case involving federal statute that I had not heard of until I got involved in the case, the AICPA, which is the Architects Copyright Protection Act. And it's been around since I believe the early 90s, rarely used and of surprising scope in the right context. So I'm sure that's a subject that the, uh, the book discusses. 
Uh, Matt, you were going to add a comment to follow up on uh, something that Mark said. You had asked us earlier, you know, what surprises us as we kind of come in through this update. And one of the things that continues to surprise me and has, has for some time is what Mark was talking about is this difference in licensure and regulation of design professionals across the states. I think we see it most diverse in this practice field than anywhere else in terms of just that multi-jurisdictional aspect. Who's stamping? When do you stamp? How do you stamp it? Everybody has something different to say. What is your reporting obligation for a malpractice claim? What is the scope? Is there a threshold value? It's a really difficult place for a a firm that is doing that multi-jurisdictional practice or the individual design professional who's just crossing the northern state border to practice somewhere else on a project. And it's just an entirely different world. And, And I don't understand why that is. I don't know why the regulations are so varied across the states, but it's really an impact and it continues to surprise us. And as Mark said, Division three does a good job of developing these 50 state surveys, trying to figure out why is there such a disconnect going on? So that was one of the things that I I wanted to piggyback on him. You know, and to Buck's point on this intellectual property, I was originally a, a computer software attorney in my first three years doing failed software implementation models. And I came out of law school, really interested in the IP side of things actually did a uh, independent research project on copywriting athletic maneuvers. I was a springboard diver in college and we would make up tricks and you would watch professional skiers, skateboarders, whatever it might be, come up with their deal. Johnny Mosley competed the dinner roll in the Olympics. And could you copyright that? The intellectual property side of things was always intriguing to me. And so it was an easy transition into representing design professionals because I'm always kind of blown away at this notion of, the amount of risk we take on creating these really artistic forms in buildings. Um, And, you know, I touch on a couple of some example projects in the introduction of the book, creating this artwork for me, watching that happen on the intellectual property side, it's just really neat to be able to see the design folks own that concept, own that idea. They're the ones that came out of the ether and, and pulled this concept together. It's just, it's just really neat. It's, it's such a neat group of folks to work with and represent and have these type of issues that I think are so distinct from other players in the construction arena. So I just wanted to add that. Well, as Buck, I think, was touching on earlier, it's an interesting conflict between so-called architectural works of art and when is a wall a wall or when is a roof just a roof? And is everything that an architect creates intellectual property. I've seen many buildings with roofs on the top. (laughs) There is only one way to kind of generally set up a building. And um, yeah, those basic concepts, to what extent does protection get there and how unique and substantially distinct do they need to be to to get that type of protection? It's a neat place to work. And I was also reminded when you were talking about why are state regulations so different from state to state. I believe there was a gentleman named Thomas Jefferson who many years ago thought that was a good job. Maybe he should have uh, foreseen the internet before Vice President Gore had a chance to invent it. Uh, Thank you all. We've had a good discussion about a new book produced by the 
ABA form on the construction industry. The book is called Design Professionals Guide to Construction Law. We've been talking with the editors, Matt Nineman, Mark Mercanti, and Buck Belzer. First, thanks to all of you. And how would a listener find this book? Well, you would use Al Gore's internet and you would go ahead and get to the ABA's Forum on Construction Laws website. I'd give you a long address to punch in. Just go to Google, punch in ABA Forum on Construction Law, and you'll see a link within the website for publications, and you'll see this book there. Buck, Matt, Mark, thanks so much. Thank you, Buzz. Thank you, Buzz. You have been listening to Construction Law Today the podcast of the American Bar Association's Forum on Construction Law. All rights relating to this podcast are owned and controlled by the American Bar Association. No reproduction or reuse of this podcast is permissible without the expressed written consent of the American Bar Association. For more information about construction law today, or if you have any questions or comments, you may contact our host, Buzz Tarlow, jtarlow at lawmt.com. Our podcast is produced with the assistance of Peak Recording Studios in Bozeman, Montana. Thank you for listening and look for our next edition of Construction Law Today.